Damn! Back again. Back again. Welcome to the Cinema Discovery Project. I don't know what that noise was supposed to be for. I don't know, just imagine lots and lots of lasers. Lasers. Uh, I don't. We don't. I don't think we have that in the budget. I don't. Yet. Yeah, I don't know why we need lasers, but I brought them. Or just laser sounds like pew 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 pow. pow. Yeah. But all hey, that, all that kind of yeah, cool stuff. Yeah, we're back here on the Cinema Discovery Project. I'm Stephen Billings, and I'm Andrew Cabral. And I don't think you. I'm are, not sure if you know who you are. It sounded like you. Questioned I don't know it. if I. These days, I don't know who I am. Or well, you're quarantined. You've been quarantined up, for, for. Well, you're usually quarantined, ain't you? Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is officially day twenty-one of my quarantine. Oh, really? So I. I, I so like at this point. For me, the days just like keep meshing. Well, let me ask another, you, what so day? I what, keep forgetting what day? What it day is, is it? <laughs> oh, it's Tuesday. Okay, okay, right. because we record on Tuesdays oh, okay. typically. Well, then so that's a giveaway. That. Never mind. That's a dead giveaway. I know that's that's a little behind the scenes magic stuff. That's kind of like when you see uh, that's when you see like a clip of a movie without the special effects, and you realize the whole movie is just made on a green screen, and you're like, oh, come on, really? Yeah. It's like, yeah, not not exactly as uh, as. Uh, cool as you thought it no. was no but we're back here on for another episode and um it's been two weeks already and this time we're going to be doing one of our uh, overview episodes i guess we haven't done one yeah, in we such a while i don't yeah, know if we even yeah have we you know we haven't done uh you know we've been you know as we said last time we've been dealing with a lot of like you know current stuff and then we did our first spotlight no in, in a while um last time which actually kind of uh, coincides with what we're going to do this week. Well, actually, our last episode, Stephen. So you oh, sorry. You know what? I'm I'm, was, I'm skipping last week's. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, skipping last times, which was we just did a whole episode on how this coronavirus is, you know, affecting the movie industry and people's personal lives and stuff like that. But the one we did do before yeah, that that's was the, one the I was spotlight yeah. on five easy pieces, which directly correlates to what we're talking about today, which is the new Hollywood era of american cinema one could say yeah yeah, that, yeah that's yeah and i mean it has um it has a couple of different names this era it you know american new wave the hollywood renaissance um whatever you like to call it 19 just call it the 1970s because it predominantly takes place in the 1970s but it's an era that i mean i i like to believe it started around 1967 and goes all the way up until 1980, 81, 82, around there. That seems to be the dates I Roughly, see yeah. when I'm doing my research. Um, and it's an era in which we've mentioned several times because I think it's a very important era of American American cinema history uh, because I think it's a lot of precursors to a lot of things that we see now. And it's a precursor to all the big names we see now in movies for the last 40 years or so all come from this era. Um, all the big time, the big time names, but it's actually my favorite era of movie history in general, because it's one that I've I think latched onto very early in getting interested in movies. Um, Stephen, how do you feel about this era in general? Yeah, I, you know it. it um, you know, doing research for this episode, um, which I, I I'd already known you know a little bit about this era, um, but it re kind of reaffirmed my you know, love for, for this era of film too. Um, you know, we always think about the seventies as, you know, the gritty, you know, era, you know, with a lot of like, you know, a lot more violent, a lot more realistic. Um, and 
is that's definitely a part of it but a part of uh i think the best part of this era that i love is that the freedom to the filmmakers um it's right. it, that's kind of that what really is at the at the center of this this movement uh is that that this was a time um this was a time where filmmakers were kind of the king um for a little bit the tours uh, because before this the hollywood was you know was just you know making the same movies over and over again and right. it was just like a a machine um kind of like it is now <laughs> very much so um before this era so let's say i don't know pre-1965 yeah you know sure why, yeah, not? why not or pre-1960s you had what everyone knows as the studio era the studios ran everything and the stars the big time movie stars were how they sold the pictures yeah. um it what they didn't really sell the pictures when it came to the filmmakers or things like that it was always the big stars i mean humphrey bogart Catherine hepburn uh betty davis yeah. joan crawford all these big i mean i mean names. and even these actors were sell. signed to the studios yeah they had multiple year um contracts yeah. Um, and what is interesting is today they kind of have those contracts too, but I think they're they're more loose and they they like they're, they're more like negotiable. I think yeah. yeah, they're more they're more like uh, like multiple picture deals. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like oh, I owe this studio four pictures, or but they'll still let me go and do this movie over here. Whereas back in the day, it was like no, they pretty much owned you. It was kind well, of like like a like a football like um like a sports teams like they own these. Players. I think I think nowadays you know I mean? it's more it more happens with um the filmmakers or the producers like um like a for instance like bradley cooper i think is signed deal with warner brothers because he's now producing a lot of movies instead of just acting in movies right so yeah he'll he'll have his production his production company will have a contract Uh, yeah a lot of actors set up their own production companies and then become their own little studios that work with the big studios to make movies right but when it comes to this era, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm losing my voice already. I haven't even started Jeez. yet. <clears throat> um, Good stuff. A lot to Good say, stuff. which is not, which is not a uh, not unusual. <laughs> but a lot of um, what happened is this old studio system fell apart. Yeah. Um, literally, literally, they were the tearing old... down you know sets and 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 big <clears throat> big you know studio the... backlots and you know. Yeah, they were. Um, what happened is a lot of the old uh, movie moguls started getting really old and passing away. Well, they, yeah, some of them passed away. Happened. Some of them were, of course, they had old ideas and they weren't keeping up with the times. Um, no, they were still making like old Hollywood movie with the glitz and the glamour and you know the sheen the mu- and just you know, the, the artificiality. The big musicals. The, the, one of the big ones that that stands out is Cleopatra. Uh, well, it's interesting that you that you say that directly, because Cleopatra bankrupted, yeah. uh, you know, Fox. Uh, Fox. Yeah. They bankrupted that studio to the point where they they had to sell off part of their their backlot to and a big, they were just crumbling. big conglomerate. Yeah, I mean, and I know that that movie today is is uh, considered a favorite amongst many Elizabeth Taylor fans and just movie fans in general. But it bankrupted that yeah. studio because it was so massive and so expensive. If you've seen the movie, it's just elaborate to the to the extreme and it really bankrupted that studio significantly um but a lot of the other ones uh went under because 
uh, like I said, a lot of the old movie moguls passed away. So where do we? So corporations would come in and buy these studios, and the corporations that would come in, like uh, who bought Gulf uh, Gulf Western bought Paramount, yeah. and this was like this was a, I think this was like an oil company or something, and they didn't know anything to do with movie making or how movies worked or how the industry worked. All they probably knew is that, hey, you know, movies can make money, so let's buy this company and make money off of it. But they weren't movie people. I think the head of the head of that company was Charlie Bluedorn, and he he didn't know anything about movies. He was into zinc and sugar, as I saw in a documentary. Yeah, that he was like a, a crazy Australian guy. Yeah, he was an Austrian the guy yeah. and he didn't know anything yeah. about movies and but he wanted complete control over the situation. Yeah. So you had to like pitch movies directly to him and just crazy stuff like that. And then um Warner Brothers um was uh Jack Warner, I think, passed away at some point or in the it's, late sixties. Yeah, I was gonna say it's a little bit that, later. It's a little after uh yeah. yeah. But he was still around but still just like, you know, old and just you had to really sell them on movies and stuff um universal was actually probably the most stable one yeah. i think lou wasserman maybe was still running it i can't really can't really remember but what was happening when all these studios were falling apart is the independent movement of the of the 60s was happening and we've touched on it a few times i mentioned roger yeah. corman many many times and he is vital to he, he um, he is... modern modern cinema. He's vital to oh, yeah. just just starting up the careers of everyone that we kind of really know. Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, Peter Bogdanovich, um, just Dennis a whole Hopper. bunch of people. Yeah. Dennis Hopper ja- Jack and um, Peter Peter Fonda, Jack Nicholson, all of these people. And he was doing this all in the '60s, and he was doing it with with really nothing. low budget yeah. B movies. Yeah. B well, movies, nothing. Yeah, what his thing is is that he he would give, you know, he 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 you know, he would let these guys work on movies, and then he, if he saw something in them, his talent more than anything was seeing talent in other people, and right. he if he saw talent in somebody, he would give them a chance, um, and you know, honestly, I mean, the more I learn about Roger Corman, the more he becomes one of I think one of the you know maybe one of the greatest icons of film uh, ever. Yeah, and he's still he's still, he's with, still us with us today. Yeah. And he's still producing movies. Like his name is still on movies. Yeah. <laughs> like he's still he's still around today. And back then his his company AIP, I was America American, American International yeah, Pictures. Yeah. And that's like I said that's where a lot of people got their start and the thing is with these movies is they were drive-in movies yeah. and they made money. Oh yeah, he was like he they was were made for money. nothing yeah. and made money. Yeah. He was he was and making movies people, loved that people wanted to see. You know, he was he's kind of like you could say he was the Blumhouse of his time because <laughs> it, he was it's, making it's definitely the model. Yeah, yeah the, definitely the, the model. Really cheap movies and movies you wanted to see. You know, motorcycle gang movies and uh, just crime movies, like wacky comedies. Um, yeah, like oh, be, uh, beach blanket bingo yeah. is one of is a is a is a funny name that I always I always thought was interesting, but he would make. Horror, like he, like Stephen said, he would make horror movies. He would yeah. make beach movies. He'd make action movies, motorcycle movies. Uh, Wild Angels was one of the most popular ones. Um, and the thing is with him is he would just give people, like Stephen said, opportunities to just make movies. Like yeah. here, here's a camera, and here's you know twenty, thirty thousand dollars. Go make a movie. <laughs> Go see what you can do. And and that's where Mars Scorsese started, and all those guys, and. 
what is interesting with that is he was tapping into the youth culture of the time. Yeah. And that is the big thing I would say with this whole new uh, new Hollywood era is it was a youth movement within the movie industry. And it was a youth movement that was catering to a young populace at the well, time. Well, yeah, the, the war it, in Vietnam was, was getting ready to start. And uh, so a lot of young people, you know, were about going against the system, you know, going, you know, right. fighting the government, you know, um, being paranoid and all the things like that. So this, you, you know, these, these filmmakers, you know, the, the Dennis Hoppers and the, and the, you know, Peter Fonda's, they were very much tapped into that and they very much had something to say. And, and, uh, you know, that's where it kind of starts to, this era starts to boom, um, that's where, yeah, the late '60s era starts to boom, and and you know, with the whole like just huge political strife of the 1960s, and just the American populace being more more awake to reality. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, everybody's got interested. you know, with media yeah. and with television being how it is, because the the that part of the reason the studio system was failing was because TV was becoming so popular. Yes. Um, so people were a lot more aware. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it, it starts to really get, um, crazy in the world. Um, right. And when the, with the world being so crazy, um, people kind of wanted the movies to reflect it or reflect their feelings about the world. And that's why all the old style movies, the movies from the golden age of like the forties and the fifties and whatnot, those types of things weren't what people wanted to see anymore. So people didn't go to the movies to see it, but they went to the movies to see the Roger Corman pictures. And, and, um, what came out of that is that, um, the studios started picking up notice of this. They started noticing, that these pictures are the ones that people wanted to see. But before then, the film that really kick-started this whole movement is Bonnie and Clyde, yes. the film by Arthur Penn, and starring Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway. And I think that movie is significant for so many reasons because it's a film that really show that really kind of gives us a glimpse of what modern cinema mo- mo- looks like you know it had sex it had violence it had characters who were immoral you know what i mean these weren't these were bank robbers that were like killing killing people and police officers yeah. and and running around and they were based on true people real people um and so that's that's a very modern concept i think having morally ambiguous people or even like rooting for the bad guys seems like a very modern concept to me yeah. in movies and Bonnie and Clyde was a big one and it was a movie that took some doing to get made and once it was made people loved it people and and, and the studios didn't think that people would love it cuz it's so especially that ending is so controversially violent at the time yeah yeah the the um, uh the writer Arthur Penn, or no, they did, he didn't write it. He just directed it. Um, right, Arthur Penn. It's, uh, Robert, yeah, he, Robert he just Benton directed and it. David knew 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 him. Um, Newsom, I think, are the writers. Um, and they they had written that, and apparently they were they knew Francois Francois Truffaut. Um, yes, which is kind of dope. I wish I knew. Yeah, him. and they, so they got a lot of their um, advice about screenwriting from him. And um, apparently, Arthur Penn was had had went to France also, and that's where they met, and that's how that got to where it got. Um, when it came, yeah, they gave they, like Warren g- Beatty was in France too, and yeah, they gave uh, Truffaut 
the script and then Truffaut basically broke like broke it down for them like this is how like this is how movie language works this yeah. is how movie timelines work this is how you know how the structure of the screenplay should be and the movie should be i mean that's pretty pretty significant in terms of getting you know professionals help and i do want to mention that uh i'm glad you mentioned Truffaut cuz all of like a lot of these people within um, the new era, the actors, the actresses, the directors, the filmmakers, everybody, hugely influenced influenced by the French New Wave and the Italian films. Uh, um, Ingmar Bergman, um, Kurosawa was, was a big yeah. name that people mentioned. Uh, Ozu was a big name that people mentioned. All the people that Godard Stephen and, and I, yeah, yeah, Godard and, and Truffaut and. Uh, Claude Chabrol yeah, we, we, we did an episode. All the people we, we, we did an episode on the, a million times. We did an episode on the French New Wave. Um, yeah. If you want to go back and listen people, to that, and yeah, but all of the people that we mentioned, we talk about now in 2020. These were the same people that people like Spielberg, Scorsese, John Milius, Coppola, uh, Bogdanovich, Dennis Hopper. All these people watched these people's movies in the 60s and were influenced by them, like we are and, influenced by them. And it's fascinating how movies have that same power over generations. Yeah, and it's... I find that to be fascinating. And it's one of the first generations that kind of talk about this um, in the documentary we watched, which is a great one. You know, we'll... we'll um, the, we watched a few, but, like, um, Easy Riders and Raging Bulls is a great documentary on this era. Um, the... This is kind of the the generation where you have what we call film buffs. Well, you know, we're film buffs, where there's right. a lot of education from watching movies, you know, and it's a lot easier now then you had to find, still had to really find stuff. Um, but these guys were very big fans of film overall, and they're more informed, and they, you know, are, are led by their passions a lot more than just, you know, having to spend so much time learning the craft itself. They've watched movies, and they've learned the craft through watching movies. Um, so They did, and yeah. it, like Stephen said, it was difficult. You basically... You know, if you were in college at the time in the 60s, UCLA, USC, um, NYU, whatever, you would go to like underground independent theaters to watch, um, you know, these movies, to watch La Dolce Vita or to watch um, whatever, you know, Persona. I, I remember I remember um, Paul Schrader talking about going to see uh, Persona and you know, being inspired by I, that. There was one part in the documentary that really like excited me. And uh, when they were talking about all the influences and stuff, one of the one of the uh, it was Dennis Hopper who said Satyajit Ray. Yes, he did. Yeah. He was the only one who mentioned yeah. him. Um, I think that was probably the first time I ever heard of Satyajit Ray when yeah. I watched this documentary like ten years. ago. I was ago. like, holy shit! And, uh, like I have so much more I mean, res- like respect for him now. <laughs> yeah, he was a big fixture of that time, and people I don't think really remember him. There were a lot of people mentioned in these documentaries that were people whose careers really boomed at that time and then kind of faded away over time. But we'll probably get well, into because a little they, bit of that I would later. say it's pr- probably a lot yeah. of it's because they dedicated themselves to that realm of film right. in the sense of like they didn't decide that they were going to continue to do b- like big budget stuff. They stayed in the indie realm most of their right. careers. Most of their careers. And also like as we'll talk about towards the end um, – I mean, this this era eventually did fall apart. They'd collapse, and then sh- and well, the movie world shifted and then also, into something else. And then also, drugs and drinking and things didn't help. Oh yeah, either. I mean, we didn't even mention that yet. Lots of drugs, lots of, drugs. Lots of alcohol. Um, we're talking like acid, S- cocaine. Sp- yes, apparently, especially Dennis Hopper. 
<laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Uh, for those of you out there uh, who are interested, watch um, uh, Vim Vendor's film, The American Friend, and watch the making of that. And basically, Dennis Hopper was so just completely gone after after filming Apocalypse Now that uh, Vim Vendor's had to basically put him in rehab and like just for him to sober up to to do to do the American Friend. And man, it's just crazy crazy wild times because these were all like i said young guys right out, uh, right after college you know a lot of them had graduated college in the you know mid to late 60s people they were in their 20s 30s you know in that era and like the same way it is now it's kind of the way it is then people kind of go crazy when they're young you know yeah, that, that and just and just they were you know they were making a lot, a lot of, of money too. and yeah you know they were given a lot of power and kind of and just getting back on track. The movie that really kind of gave these young people lots of power um, is Easy Rider. Yeah, e- Easy Rider was a film that you can you know obviously still watch today, but it's a film that's low budget. It's it's a movie that's like, um, how do I want to say this? Uh, it's basically about the Amer- like America of the late sixties. All of the feelings and all of the, all of that existentialism and all that kind of stuff was all thrown into that movie, and people went to see it in droves, and it made lots of money. And that's again when the studios were like, okay, low budget, and, and maybe these, let's start giving these these young these young directors and people the money to make these movies because we can make money off of them because this movie just made a lot of money. Let's yeah. replicate that. Let's replicate that, which is what we see in movies now. How many movies now are, you know, follow sequels and remakes and sequels and remakes and try to just try to make more money off of the same thing over and over. Keeps happening. So that happened. And that was a huge thing. That was through um, BBS with Bob Rafelson and and all the people we mentioned kind of when we talked about um, Five Easy Pieces and all that kind of stuff. And those were guys that were interesting because they started their own production company. Ray Burt Productions. And they. Yeah, and they started, and they made five easy pieces: Easy Rider, King of Marvin Gardens, Drive. He said, um, "Yeah, they." I'm probably missing they signed, big one in there. Yeah, they signed with Columbia after yes, Columbia yeah. because they, they 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 because they they got in. Oh man, what was his name? Uh, Bert Bert something. Oh man, Bert Schneider. Bert Schweiner. Schneider. Yeah. yeah, Bert Schneider, and he was the son of the head of Columbia Pictures. Yeah. So they got in with Apparently him. Apparently, he was a young. And, he was like the the go to guy. Like he had the drugs. He had you know. He was the guy that could get you things. He well, he was oh, like yeah. the cool producer. So many drugs. You know, yes, the hippie yeah, producer. Um, so they got in with him, and that's how they were able to get these films distributed, basically yeah. through Columbia and, Pictures. And, there, and the um, thing that really Sony. got there got them started before this was the whole thing with the monkeys. Yeah, I didn't. I completely forgot yeah. about that. How the monkeys was a fake band. For a TV series that was just they like an American version of the Beatles, they, you know, American version of the Beatles, yeah. and then they ended up becoming a real a real band that like toured and made albums and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but they wanted to make a movie, and the, you know, the thing is, is the band who had already, I think, kind of like got broken up, and like, but they brought them back, and they wanted to do something more serious, and they made this movie called Head, which is yes. which is in yes, the in that that BBS set. Um, it is, and it's it's a very trippy, weird movie. Apparently, I haven't seen it yet, but um, so that's it. Very, it's very yeah, it's very meta, yeah. very weird. Um, 
but yeah, they did that, and and um, let's see, so there's so much information, but one of the biggest things that I actually n- neither of the documentaries we watched really talked about it, and that well, they talked about it a little bit, I think, in Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, was American Zoetrope, yeah, which was um, Coppola, George Lucas, John Milius, um, uh, um, Walter Murch was in there. And that was that was their production company, American Zoetrope, which still exists today. And I think Sofia Coppola and Roman Coppola are the are, are the ones who like they own it now or something like that, or it's under their name. But it's still around. But obviously not the same yeah. people involved. But this is where we get the heavy hitters coming in. This is where the studio starts signing up a bunch of these people. Um, uh, Paramount uh, scooped up Coppola, um, and. And Universal scooped up Steven Spielberg, yeah. and all this kind of stuff was happening. But the, I mean, this this is kind of like I'm not even film school 101, but I guess just like kind of pop culture movie 101. The Godfather is a very significant movie in American um, movie history because it's the one that uh, started off Coppola's career but it's the one that really became a massive success for someone who was part of this young group of filmmakers you know what i mean like it really proved that these young filmmakers can make quality movie and make lots of money yeah uh, within the studio quote unquote their studio system well, it, which wasn't really a studio and without system. and without interference although like he almost got kicked he i mean you got to watch the making of that of um of that, he almost got kicked off of that several times while making it. <laughs> this, like they, they were gonna push him out like several times, but what really what what made them stick with him is that he had the clout of winning the Oscar for writing the screenplay for Patton. Yeah, yeah. For for starring George C. Scott, that really gave him the clout to do whatever he wanted, and he what he wanted to do was get George Lucas's uh, film made. And once and once George Lucas had made THX eleven thirty eight, and the studio hated <laughs> hated the heck out of that movie. They hated it. I personally really really like it. I think it's one of George Lucas's most innovative thing that isn't Star Wars. But it but once that kind of went to went down the drain, like American Zoetrope kind of fell apart a little bit because like they didn't really have anyone to make uh, anyone else other than Coppola he was kind of keeping it afloat that's a whole different story for a different time but um yeah so The Godfather is a significant movie early 1970s he, he took he took concepts that were considered um immoral not considered um I don't want to say immoral is not the word but grotesque or you know so you're not supposed to root for the bad yeah. guys Stephen that's not the way the movies worked back then but that's the way a lot of these films are and that's one of the the monikers i think of 1970s cinema is most of the films that we think about the main characters are kind of bad guys yeah yeah. they really they're they're not they're not they're not white knights and least of all you know italian gangsters from you know whatever era that are doing all kinds of crime and whatnot so that so with the success of the godfather of course he got to make the um um the conversation um, he, and of course, he got to make Godfather Part Two. Got to make Apocalypse Now, um, and he also got to basically prop up his friends, get his friends jobs and whatnot. Um, and he also, um, and but he also kind of discovered a lot of people along the way, like Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, um, 
these guys were 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 actors that that they they were plucked out of obscurity. That's what's fascinating about this era is all these guys that are just considered the best ever were plucked out of nowhere. (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, like, I mean, you know, if we're talking, you know, like Scorsese, you know, he, you know, he brings in Harvey Keitel, you know, who's apparently they were like inseparable at the beginning. And um, with that came De Niro. They did um, Mean Streets. Yeah, Mean Streets was, you know, he'd already done, uh, you know, what was the Boxcar Bertha with... Uh, he had done Boxcar Bertha. He also had done... Um, Alice. Who's that knocking at my door? Alice doesn't live here anymore. Film. And Alice doesn't live here anymore, which he had done right after Mean Streets. Um, and that's a completely different film than I think a lot of people yeah. um, associate with Scorsese. But with Scorsese was working primarily at Warner Brothers, um, which was being run by John Calley at the time. And John Calley was, it was a bit of a character, as you could tell from the documentary... Um, a decade under the influence. Uh, he ran Warner Brothers from 19... He was one of the executives. He didn't run it, but he was in a high-up high up, high up executive from 69 to 1981. And what I remember so distinctly about him is that he loved Mean Streets. Yeah. He loved Mean Streets so much. He thought Robert De Niro... He thought Robert De Niro was someone they got from an insane asylum <laughs> and put him in the movie because he was so crazy in Mean Streets. And I thought that was... I thought that was fascinating. <laughs> oh... Man, um, but there's a lot of other filmmakers. I'd say I'd say one of the, sem- the one of the very important filmmakers of this yeah, period on. that came in was Sam Peckinpah. No one, yeah, underappreciated Sam Peckinpah. His films are unlike anyone well, else's I th- films. I think you know, as we're talking about how violent, you know, and how different mm-hmm. this th- this era is, a lot of that comes from his films. You know, his films really push the boundaries. Um, whether you're talking about straw dogs or, or stray dogs or straw dogs, it was, yeah, straw, straw dogs, dogs. Yeah. Um, and, or you know, um, that you know, wild bunch, wild, wild bunch is kind of the big bunch. one. Um, yeah, that was one done in the '69, I think '68, '69, and that was what I find so fascinating about Wild Bunch. And Stephen, I don't know if you'll agree with me, is that like people have this concept of westerns, and I think movies like the wild bunch completely destroy that concept yeah. of the western like it's not a not a john wayne western you know what i mean there's no there's no it's very violent very angry very aggressive and it kind of paints the west in a, in a less rosy color than a lot of people like to think like to think it was by watch through watching movies um and but a lot of that i think was brought out of the um Spaghetti yeah, westerns I was say the Italian from Italy, westerns, yeah, but from Sergio Leone, um, those kind of changed the game as well when it came to westerns. But some of the other directors that I kind of want to highlight, um, Peter Bogdanovich is one of my favorite like people in movie history ever because he was he didn't he didn't start out as a film director. He started out as a fan, yeah, and he started out as a fan of westerns, and he was on. Um, he was on sets of westerns interviewing people and whatnot. He was very good friends with um, Orson Welles. Great, he has great Orson Welles stories. He has great stories about Alfred Hitchcock, and he made and he he made a significant movie in the late nineteen sixty called Targets, which I don't think anyone knows about this movie unless you're like a like like you're 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 a cinephile or a fan, because Targets has got to be one of the most controversial movies uh, made at that time came out in 1968 and basically it's a movie about a guy who just goes and and sits on top of a a, a 
I think I forgot what it is. It's on top of something right off a highway, and he's just shooting people. He's shooting people in their cars on the highway, and and for late 1960s, like this is post um, Kennedy assassination, and it actually came out around the same well, time it, as it Robert Kennedy right assassination. Right and they had to they pulled it right after. And that. they had to pull it. Yeah. They had to pull it after that. What I found fascinating about that production is um is um uh Boris Karloff is in the film. And the only reason Boris Karloff is in the film is because he owed like two days well, it was, of filming. It was, yeah, with he, they, they told him he he he. They'd already shot what was it, the Terror? Yeah, the Terror. Yeah, and they yeah. already shot footage for that. And they were like, the only way he's like, I'll give you the money to make a movie, but you have to use this footage and and work with Boris Karloff, you know, for whatever amount of time he was he was they were he was owed to them. So yeah, and that was a Roger Corman produced yeah picture. And yeah, Targets is fascinating, but I think his one of my favorite films from his is The Last Picture Show, and that's a film uh, starring Sybil Shepherd in her I think first role. That's where she was discovered. Um, Jeff Bridges is in that film. I believe Richard Dreyfuss is also in that film. Mm-hmm. Um, I should probably look that up before I start I'm saying not sh- saying things. I think we might be thinking of. I could American be thinking graffiti. of American Graffiti. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's it's um let's see, da da da. Uh Timothy Bottoms, Jeff Bridges, Sybil Shepherd, Cloris Leachman, Ellen Burstyn. No, you know, you're right. Richard Dreyfus is not in that film. But he's he was around in that era. Yeah, yeah, he that. was in American Graffiti, which is George Lucas's kind of big big first movie. Yeah, which is the one that he like once like um once Coppola got you know, like I said, got all that power, he was able to, to kind of get universal, I think, to make American Graffiti. Well, for, well, with George Lucas at the helm, um, and um, but what were we saying? Oh yeah, Last Picture Show. But this was the film, yeah, that was shot in black and white, which was you know 1971, a film shot in black and white, not a, not really something that you saw. Not even the B pictures, I don't think, were shot in black and white for the most part. Um, but it, it just captured a certain old-fashioned aesthetic that I don't think a lot of the films at the time uh, really captured. It's a it's an amazing film. I highly recommend. Anyone to see it, um, but yeah, there's so many stories that go on behind the scenes about that film. Um, but another filmmaker I think is really important, and it's a filmmaker I didn't know a lot about until I saw this documentary, you know, years and years ago. And that's Robert Altman. Yeah, Robert Altman was massive back in that time, and Robert Altman I don't think gets remembered a lot because he never really made like mainstream cinema uh, post this era. Um, at Na- at Nashville was his I biggest hit, kind of. Yeah, Nashville was kind of his biggest movie, I think, at that time. Although Mash is is really big, but he of course made movies after that era. I mean, he, I, you know, one of his last films was Gosford Park, which I think is a great film. But he made um, the player. He made Shortcuts. Um, I mean, I mean, his most mainstream film, and it's not the best even. Is is the live action Popeye yeah, film yeah. starring um, Robin Williams, circa nineteen eighty? Um, but yeah, back in that time, he made films like you said, Nashville, The Long Goodbye, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, um, Mash. Uh, yeah, he made Mash, Three Women, which is an insane film starring Shelley Duvall. Just a crazy, crazy movie. Um, but he was just massive, influential at the time. He also had. Um, Paul Mazursky was another name I had I did not know about. Um, Monty Hellman made the film uh, Two Lane Blacktop. 
um, so many people that you just don't you just don't know about if you don't really look at this era because a lot of their careers really didn't go past this era. I mean, William Friedkin, um, he's a, his two biggest films and his biggest claims to fame are two films he did in the 1970s. I don't think very many people remember what he did past that time when he did The French Connection yeah. as well as um, Exorcist. The Exorcist. Yeah. The, um, which was, could, well, what ended up killing him was the Saucer film. Yeah, Saucer... Uh, which... The, um, which is which is a, honestly a great film. I've really, it's, I really I've seen it. it. Yeah, it's it's okay. I mean, it's it, it apparently flopped though. Um, oh but, yeah, but it, it's basically oh, yeah. it's a remake of um, which Wages of Fear. Yeah, yeah. Or it's a readaptation of the book Wages of yeah. Fear. Either either way you look at it, it's pretty nearly the same. But type yeah, of he kind of goes down. He loses his kind of like you know weight with the studios after that. Um, but. One of the big yeah, uh, one of the big events that happened early on in this movement um, is uh, um, the stuff with Roman Polanski. No, oh, I wasn't even going to mention it. I guess, but I guess if you want to bring it up, sure. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, um, it's it I mean, is, it's, 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 it's kind of a big part of that whole, you know, just like the Kennedy well, assassination, well, t- you know. Yeah, there 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 are two major events that happen with Roman Polanski, um, both extremely tragic for many many reasons. Uh, the first, first of all, he was one of the directors that people mentioned that were influences on him because he had done Knife in the Water, um, and Repulsion, and his, and... his yeah, Repulsion, and the films he was doing overseas, which were really, which are really good. I mean, he is a great filmmaker, terrible human being, yeah. great filmmaker back in his day. Um, but of course, what happened, which we talked about significantly when we talked about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, um, uh, Quentin Tarantino's film is, you know, Sharon Tate being violently murdered by the people from the Manson cult. And that was another thing that was part of the culture of the time, the violence, just the brutality and the the insanity of humanity. That whole scenario, like what the change that was happening in cinema happened in real life, where the, the, the public wanted to see things that were more reflective of real life and... You know, in a place where dreams come true, the 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 fantasy becomes, you know, gets put on the pictures. Um, you know, one of these famous people gets killed. Um, yeah, you know. yeah. It it's um, yeah. You know, the reflection of it's really tough to like. It's kind of like today, like all, which is which is interesting about today is we're we're inundated with so much violence and just horrific things in the news that people want that escape now yeah. versus back then where people just wanted it refl- people were just like ah oh, yeah they that's were not they really were looking the for truth you know works. they were looking for truth yeah, they were the people sick wanted of truth hollywood trying to sh- reflect american that it's everything's all happy go lucky um, and it's not they needed an outlet they needed somebody to express what they were re- really feeling very true i mean a lot of the, uh, several of the other directors you have of course um sydney lumet man Sidney Lumet in in that era was just pu- putting out oh, yeah. fantastic prime work. stuff, yeah. Prime, like prime stuff. I mean, he he did do The Wiz, which isn't well received by many, but before then he had the done Pawn like Broker. Serpico. Oh yeah, the yeah, yeah. Pawnbroker is a film no one talks yeah. about, which they really should. But he was doing, of course, he he started with the, he started in television like um like several other people had. But yeah, the porn broker was 1964. Um, he did. Uh, where am I looking for? Where are you? Um, Network. Um, 
uh, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon. Um, there's three just fantastic films. Like anybody would wish to make three great films like that. Um, his career definitely, he definitely went on to make other films like The Verdict in the 80s. Um, and I think, coincidentally, I think his last film, which came out in 2007, is a fantastic film. Yeah. Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. That's a great film. Philip Seymour Hoffman, Ethan Hawke is in that film, Marissa Tomei. Um, a really great film. But he's he's a name I didn't know until I had actually gone back and seen all these, and seen all these films. Um, another one that's significant, I mean, significant to me um, is someone like Mike Nichols. Yeah. Mike Nichols was made, um, when I think of the, the seminal films of the movement early on was uh, The Graduate. Yeah. Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman had, an, had a crazy great career launch with all the films he did in that era, all the way up until like the mid-80s. He was just having... You know, just yeah, one hell of a Cowboy, run. which we talked about. And... Which we did. Um, but Mike Nichols did uh, The Graduate. He did Catch-22, Carnal Knowledge, starring uh, Jack Nicholson. Um, yeah, but also, um, I mean, we I mean, we can talk about it, but, you know, George Lucas obviously probably had one of the most lasting legacies. But yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> as, as we get as later well into the 70s, which you know, this era we... basically covers the 70s, um, you know. Yeah, it's predominantly the seventies, and we had you know Spielberg got his start doing, wasn't his first but film. He duel. did duel, and then that sparked the interest of Universal, and that's what got him signed to do Jaws. Um, right, which is, and then he did Close Encounters. Uh, you could say Jaws was the was uh, we, we you know we talk about this a lot. Jaws is the Jaws is the turning. This is point the turning point when, in this era yeah, where we start to the, see the early. The, yeah, there's like two parts to this yeah. era. There's the early part, which is like the rise. You know what I mean? Think like about think about the ape, about. recent Apes trilogy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the rise of the Planet good metaphors. The and then in the middle, we got the dawn, which is when Spielberg makes Jaws, and then uh, whatever the last movie was called, I don't remember. Oh, War, War for, for Planet yeah, of the Apes. The war where things are a little things are a little dire in that yeah, film. And now the studios I mean, have gained control back again, and the war is over basically. <laughs> yeah, the war. Well, yeah, or the war, the war the continues in, in a different form. Um, but what is um, what is interesting about that beginning era is just the wildness and how there were no rules. Like constantly, when I was watching these documentaries, people were talking about how there were just they could do whatever they wanted. Yeah. The, st the studios gave them what, whatever they wanted, whatever amount of money they wanted, whatever amount of just freedom they wanted, and they just lapped it up i mean you um it's just just wild stuff where people would just be like all these big time names who were just starting their careers at the time would just be hanging out at like people's houses and like doing like smoking weed and just like talking about shit well, <laughs> you know uh, I mean? yeah like, no, i mean like movies like, like we talked about easy rider i mean they were actually doing drugs during oh, the making of the movie oh i believe that yeah yeah they were I smoking mean, weed and they, you know things that you couldn't get away with now no, I mean I, you could try. I mean, you could. I, I mean, if you were it, a small independent movie, sure, but like Hollywood yeah, movie, but it, no. Yeah, they got producers and executives and corporate people all over you all the time, just to to keep you in line to make sure you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. You can't be going too far out of that line for the most part. Well, there's some too much money involved in movies, you know. Now, yeah, there's so many politics and yeah. contracts and all that kind of stuff that affects your ability to to direct and 
and all that stuff. Um, uh, another director, which I know a lot of people don't like these days, and we talked about Polanski a little bit. Uh, Chinatown is is a seminal film in that in that era. Um, unfortunately, the other thing that you know, yeah, Polanski committed a horrific crime that that he still really hasn't paid the penalty for. Oh yeah, he, for he had to day. flee the country. So he had to flee the country. I mean, he's he's still a criminal. Um, um, what's that? Um, what's that term? Um, escape from justice or something like that. Um, yeah, he's still, yeah, he's still, he's not a good guy. Like we said, not a good guy. But another person who a lot of people don't like and who got his career started this time and it's kind of his prime, well, more like the 70s, 80s, maybe into the 90s, is Woody Allen. Yeah. Woody Allen's films are completely different than um, the other films of these people we've been talking about. Completely different. His films are a little more... They're a little more old Hollywood. Yeah. Because um, they're, they're, I always have had this conversation, maybe jokingly, is like there's Martin Scorsese's version of New York in the 70s, and then there's Woody Allen's version of New yeah. York in the 70s. And they're completely different worlds. Like you wouldn't you'd think that these are the same places. Like if you watch Taxi Driver versus watching um, Annie Hall, they're completely different places. But they're both New York in the 70s. But Woody Allen, he brought in a lot of... Um, kind of simplistic filmmaking. A lot, you know, the two shots, the walk and talks, the films based on predominantly dialogue, things like that. That was a lot of his stuff that was introduced. Very, well, he, he, you know, neurotic, introspective lead characters. Well, he put um, himself. He like puts that. himself in almost every movie. Yeah, and they're basically like kind of like fictionalized versions of himself to a yeah, certain he, point. He, I he's think. definitely a writer before he's a director. Yeah, like I wouldn't watch a Woody Allen film to really learn about um, the ins and outs of like cin- um, cinematic directing. language. Necessarily. Yeah, although yeah. yeah, to watch cinematic language, although he had um, one of uh, one of the best um, cinematographers who I believe had had also shot uh, the Godfather, and that was the Prince of um, the. Well, I think they called him the Prince of Darkness. What was his name? Um, looking him up right now, Gordon Willis. Gordon Willis, who they call the Prince of Darkness. I don't even have to call him the Prince of Darkness. King of Darkness, Prince of Darkness. I don't know. It was something to do with darkness because the way they purposely exposed um, or they purposely developed the film uh, or shot the film or or developed whatever you want to say. I'm sure. losing my mind here. Uh, of the Godfather to look dark, yeah. really dark, so that the studio couldn't, like, so the studio couldn't fuck with it. <laughs> so like, <laughs> it's like they purposely made it look like they couldn't see shit, so that the studio wouldn't mess with the movie, which I thought was kind of interesting. That's why they called Gordon Willis, uh, you know, Prince of Darkness. But he shot he shot a lot of Woody Allen's work, which was which which doesn't have like the most suave aesthetic. Yeah, you know what I mean. His films are very you know the two shot and not a lot of coverage very basic filmmaking it's kind of a, i mean as much as people do not like woody allen for today for, for for you know several several controversial reasons if you're a young filmmaker out there someone who's looking for the aesthetic basics of making your first film like a student film or something you may want to uh, take a look at woody allen's films because they're they're basic and they're easily easy to learn from and easy to translate from and i that's mean kind of where i learned a lot the of thing is stuff. is is you know it's a conversation you have. We, you know, f- film people have all the time. You know, style, style over substance, vice versa. Right. And you know, sometimes it just depends on. I mean, they're 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 definitely interlinked, 
but you know sometimes um, you know maybe you're not as uh, interested in being stylish and you're more about caring about the you know telling uh, interesting stories or interesting you know talking about interesting characters and you know maybe you don't want to have as as much of a stylish flair with your filmmaking so you know somebody like a Woody Allen who has continued to work for you know 50 years um, you know though he is not so dynamic as a as a director he still continues to make things that people want to see so um, right. You don't have to. And you so, don't have to be the Zack Snyder's or the Ridley yeah, Scotts, right. uh, where you have very, you know, distinct Elaborate. visuals yeah. um, to be a, a good filmmaker. So no, everyone has their own style. Yeah. I mean, speaking of someone who has their own style, Brian De Palma, who was actually part of that whole group. I mean, he was making his own versions of Hitchcock movies, yeah. but with his own style. That was yeah, kind of predominantly a lot of his work with like sisters Carrie and. and um, Carrie and um, uh, what's the one with Michael Caine? Of course, it's not here when I need when I need it. Um, <laughs> Dress to Kill. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Dress to Kill with Karen Allen. Um, not Karen Allen. Um, oh, she was in RoboCop. Uh, I'm gonna lose. Why don't you know? I'm gonna, uh, I don't. I don't know why I don't know this. I'm losing my mind here. Um, but uh, Nancy Allen. Nancy Allen. Not sure. Karen yeah, Allen. Yeah. Karen Allen was in was in Raiders yeah. with Harrison Ford. Um, but people like George Roy Hill, John Carpenter was getting getting his stuff done in the 80s. We, in the 70s, we talked about that 70s era of uh, horror films when we talked about the horror films. Um, but, yeah, there were a lot of people um, doing, a lot of pe- prominent people doing work back then, and they were, and, and they were making their own films. It was auteur filmmaking, um, in a gritty style, these likewise, like we've said before, the aesthetics of 1970 cinema are dark, gritty. They're ugly-looking films for the most part because they're so, you know, they're so like stuck in reality. And reality at that time was was being interpreted as a very ugly world to live in. Um, something I wanted to touch on, Stephen, and maybe you'll let me touch on because I just keep talking. Sure. Is unfortunately. When it came, all the names we've mentioned have been prominently um, men. Women did not get the luxury of behind the camera as men did in this era. Yeah, we've talked at about at least in America. At least in America, I mean, uh, a couple of filmmakers. I mean, Elaine May made um, Mikey and Nikki, which is a which is a, it's a really good nineteen seventies film in my yeah. opinion. Uh, John Cassavetes and Peter Falk, I believe. Um, but what they lacked behind the camera, I think we got a lot of great actresses um, getting their careers started in front of the camera in the 70s. But would you say that, Stephen? Oh, sure. I mean, I mean, it's definitely still a lot of great actresses going on in that time. I mean, um, uh, you know... And a lot, you know, a lot of them would go on to be probably, you know, to be on producers on things, and you know, just kind of like a lot of female uh, females today, you know, um, whether it be your uh, uh, what's her name um, that just did uh, the Charlie's Angels movie. Oh, um, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Banks. Banks becoming a very, right. you know, very a director, you know, uh, producer. Oh yeah, I, I will say this: women were still, of course, working in the industry. But when we look back at that era, like we always remember all the big time male names. Yeah. 
and not necessarily the female name. Well, that's, unless we're that's, talking about actresses. Yeah, yeah. Unless we're talking about actresses. Because, you know, I mentioned Sybil Shepard, Ellen Burstyn, Cloris Leachman got her start there. Uh, start then. Uh, Meryl Streep got her start in the 70s as well. Uh, with Sissy Spacek. Sissy Spacek is another yeah. big one. Um, you also had um, uh, Jodie Foster yeah. got her start in that era. Karen Black, which we mentioned when we did Five Easy Pieces. Um, Diane Keaton. I mean, we just talked about Woody Allen. Uh, Shelley Duvall, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis got her start yeah. back then as well. Um, you know, she was the first scream queen. Of course, the late great Carrie Fisher was was you know of course in Star Wars and whatnot, uh, but she was in more than just Star Wars. But um, one of one a big one for me is is Gina Rowlands, who was in a lot of John Cassavetes' work because they were I believe married. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they were of course she she was of course. Uh, um, his lead in a lot of films and they mentioned Cassavetes a lot in one of the documentaries as being an influence because he's kind of like the father of American independent cinema because he because his films were just so they were independent films he would just take the people from his acting class yeah I was gonna say and he, like get a camera yeah they, they very movie. much were he was a very big influence on that a guerrilla style of filmmaking where you would because you, yes. you know a lot of you know you didn't want to go you didn't have the money to get permits so they would just oh, no. go and oh, go permits. and shoot on a okay. street and until the cops were called <laughs> you know yeah <laughs> which is cr- which is i mean people still do that shit today, oh yeah but, i mean uh, i mean honestly um, whenever i decide to make my first thing that's probably what i'm gonna have to do you know Oh yeah, what is the permits? Yeah, I don't have. I don't. I, <laughs> no, I can't go through you. the proper channels here. <laughs> I know proper channels. You have to pay for those yeah. things. It costs money. You gotta like schedule time and all that yeah. kind of stuff. It's a it's a problem. Forget that noise. <laughs> um, but Gina Rollins was in. Uh, she was in Faces. She was in um, uh, a Woman Under the Influence, which is an amazing, amazing film. Uh, from the sev- from the seventies, and Ellen Burstyn is another actress who is you know she's still around today, but she was she got her start back then. Like we mentioned, um, she was in The Exorcist. Yeah, uh, she was also in um, uh, the Scorsese film. Alice doesn't live here anymore. Um, she was in the Last Picture Show. Uh, great, fantastic actress. Um, yeah, she's won an Oscar. I was gonna say that she won an Oscar. She did. She won one for Alice doesn't live here anymore. Yeah, um, but some other actors, there's so many actors I want to mention. Goldie Hawn got her start back then. Oh, yeah, well, Sugar Land um, Express. Yeah, Mia Farrow. With uh, Spielberg. Um, yeah, Faye Dunaway, Jessica Lange, Julie Christie was a prominent, a prominent, um, they interviewed her a lot in A Decade Under the Influence. Uh, Pam Greer, they interviewed her, and, and that's part of, and that's another part of the 1970s that we didn't talk about was the black exploitation yeah. era, which was, you know, those were B movies. Well, that, yeah. Them were probably driving. Them were, them were, them were, those were driving movies. Driving yeah. slash, you know, your grindhouse theaters and yes. yeah. And she was in and some of the titles for some of the movies she was in were very interesting titles. <laughs> uh, like the, like the big bird cage and uh black mama, white mama, um, and this is just a woman called Women in Cages at the Big Doll House, which is a, which is a, apparently there's a whole subgenre of women in prison movies. I didn't know. It's I a fetish. That. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fetish for men. Apparently, it's a fetish, but it's but it's a it's a thing. But she was in like Coffee yeah. and uh, uh, Foxy Brown and those types of movies. I when I think of that era, I think of Pam Grier. I also think of Shaft, Dole, um, 
Um, Dolomite. Yeah, Dolomite. Yeah. Dolomite. Um, I also think of um, Superfly. You know, those those movies and whatnot. And those are all part of that era too. And it's there's very very interesting just these, this cross pollination of all these kinds of different movies back then, and just the different genres that were meshing with one another, and just. Because there was so much to consume, and it, it's kind of a precursor to now how there's so much to consume. Um, but as as all good things, Stephen, many good things have to come to an end eventually. Yeah. I don't know if you want to if you want to segue into the second half of this era. Yeah. Which honestly, it, we're making it sound like oh everything went to shit, but I mean, we got some pretty great movies out of well, it. Well, I mean, it doesn't go to shit, but the, but the. You know that there's a shift. It, there's definitely a shift where the studios, um, you know, kind of took control again. You know, and, and it's it makes sense. You know, the studios are going to stand on the shoulders of the the hardworking filmmakers um, that got them back in business, and then take the take the keys away from them again, and uh, start investing money in in these kind of started what we now call tentpole movies. Um, you know, with filmmakers like Steven Spielberg um, making, you know, Jaws kind of blew everything up, and then Star Wars came next, and and then uh, you know, then Spielberg went and would go, continue to make big movies like Close Encounters, Close Encounters, and, yeah, and uh, even flops like 1941. <laughs> oh yes, like yeah, like 1941. Well, what happened is. Um, I mean, like Stephen had mentioned, like these big movies came out. Star Wars changed the game. Oh yeah, well, it's Star Wars. I mean, we all we talk about Star Wars ad nauseum, Stephen and I, and everyone seems to nowadays because it's still around. But like, and people get sick of it, like, oh, Star Wars, that you know, that you know, that you know, whatever that movie, what people look down on it now because sure. it's so popular. But man, back in the day, back in the '70s, Star Wars it was unlike anything else ever made to that point. Um, pretty much, like they, it, it even exceeded Star Trek because Star Trek always had a um, Star Trek was different. Star Trek's like very, very different in tone, different in style, um, all that kind of stuff. Sci-fi was different. You had a lot of dystopian films from the seventies, but you didn't have like, like all the sci-fi stuff was cheesy and not serious. Although Star Wars could, when it was made, was probably considered a B movie because it dealt with a genre that wasn't taken seriously. And it probably wasn't until Star Wars that it got taken seriously yeah. for the most part, especially with Empire Strikes Back and the whole 1980s and the huge, you know, sci-fi fantasy, uh, you know, explosion that was the 1980s. But um, no film was made like that. Uh, it was um, 20, uh, 20th Century Fox was doing it. George Lucas was doing it overseas because, like, that the, I the way he had to do it because of the cameras and the technique and all that kind of stuff. There's a whole there's a whole thing about the making of Star Wars that many people can watch. Um, Empire of Dreams, I think, is the documentary. Or you can watch um, even the American Zoetrope documentary that's on the THX 1138 DVD and Blu-ray. is really fantastic to watch. Um, goes into all that kind of stuff. And just, and just really how genius George Lucas was for... Um, doing Star Wars. Granted, he was taking a lot of influence from stuff he already knew from the past. So it's not like he thought all of it up like sure. ima- like by himself. He was taking influence from things from before like everyone has done. But um when it hit and it it hit and it was a massive hit, this is when we got like the cross culture of like oh, movies can now be 
uh, mass marketed to make money off of other things than just the movie at the box office. Yeah, yeah, the, the merchandising, uh, you know, toys and and other, you know, we started cross marketing things in a different way. Movies became more integrated into a lot of th- other things than than just going to the theater and you know commercials on TV and toys and theme parks and and it it, it just it blew up. Yeah, merchandising, merchandising. That's uh, that's how that's how yogurt says in Spaceballs. Um, I would love a new Spaceballs movie today, but that's just that's a different thing. Um, but George Lucas, like, then he he retained all the merchandising rights because they didn't think it. They didn't they think thought it was, they thought it was gonna it was gonna fail. Yeah, <laughs> that's how he made all of his money is because of the merchandising from Star Wars. Apparently, if this didn't it, work out, he was gonna do porn. Oh, did you got? Oh, I'm glad you watched that because this has been something I've talked about with my close friends for years. It's like John Milius said it in the in the, whether it's true or not, who knows? In Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, John Milius says like you know if if direct if it didn't work out for George like he, he like Milius suggested he go into like uh, pornos like pornographic films and and Milius is like uh, you know who knows today he could have had a whole porn empire. And I was like, okay. <laughs> He'd probably have made more money today than he ever you know. <laughs> John Milius is a very interesting human being. For those of you out there who want to know more about John Milius, watch the Milius documentary that was done a few years ago because it's amazing. Uh, he's a very interesting character, and he was he, he was great writer behind a lot of stuff like Dirty Harry and Apocalypse Now, and he directed one of the Dirty Harry movies, which is probably the best Dirty Harry movie. I can't remember what it is. But he, did, of course, wrote um, Conan the Barbarian with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um yeah, uh, it was very fascinating man. But yeah, apparently that was that was the thing, which coincidentally was also kind of a an industry that was booming in the nineteen seventies as well. Which yeah. um, I guess a story for a different time. But if you watch the movie <laughs> Boogie Nights, where of course you know it's fictionalized, but it takes place back then, and you can kind of see, get a glimpse of like that industry, the adult entertainment industry booming in the in the seventies, because you know things were changing. One thing we didn't mention is kind of the reason why all these filmmakers were able to make movies that were so gritty and so real and so, um, you know, you know, sexual and and you know, perverse and all that kind of stuff, is because uh, the old Hayes Code, which we talked about once upon a time when we did our uh, like censorship movie uh, episode, was thrown in the trash in the mid '60s and replaced oh, yeah. with the MPAA, where you could have PG and now R-rated movies. You didn't get PG-13 till later on, so you can make movies now with sex, drugs, and rock yeah. And roll, basically, I guess. the studio somebody they were waiting for somebody to to finally you know though they threw the code away you know they <laughs> were waiting for somebody to step up <laughs> you <know>? yeah <laughs> and nobody was stepping up and then finally yeah I mean Bonnie and Clyde kind of was the first big yeah, one yeah Bonnie and Clyde kind of pushed it and then um. You got to start seeing more, more, you know, R-rated films like what we consider now adult-oriented films, with you know, things not for children. Um, but when it came to the the another thing I want to mention in the late era was like you said the flops. The flops kept coming, and once they kept coming, the studios um, weren't happy with with the young bucks that they had, you know, given the given the kings the keys to the castle. Well, the castle thing is, to. is when you when you talk about the type of movies that they want to make. There's there is yeah, a risk, you know. Yes. You know there there you know it's either going to have an audience or it's not. Doesn't mean that the, the the movies are not good, but 
they're about money and you know not about you know you know being art you know being an artist um so you know when the, when the studio started snatching up and putting out these guys movies you know they became disappointed with you know because you know weren't getting the returns they think they they should have been getting that that, that they were getting from before yeah but well um, also you know the you know the war i think by the end of the 70s ended over. yeah um well yeah that kind of happened too where the there was a culture shift once um once vietnam was over i guess people really didn't want they didn't want to be reminded to of see these movies anymore you know, yeah they didn't want to see it anymore the post vietnam era they want to go back to happier things i guess i mean i mean it kind of um, i mean you could say though you know they do say raging bulls kind of the end of this era you know you mm. also have apocalypse now which was like right around that time too yeah 79 yeah, yeah. yeah so but some of the some of the flops i mean like we, we were saying or flops or movies that weren't received well or films that i think are amazing now there's one film here that's considered one of the all-time um kind of death knells of this of this era and that is heaven's gate yeah michael cimino's film which is a film you've seen yeah. which i haven't seen but i have it and i almost watched it but it's like a four-hour movie <laughs> uh, so it's like it's you're in quarantine you watch the goddamn movie yeah i know seriously i got all the time in the world i'm in a time funny machine, enough i just watched but, another uh, one of his movies i watched the year of the year of the dragon oh cool oh wow yeah yeah, so his career didn't die, but it, it didn't fizzled quite recover out yeah. after Heaven's yeah. Gate. Yeah, yeah, Heaven's Gate is three hours and thirty nine minutes long. Um, this movie apparently was in, in during its production was such a such a hassle. Like it was like, could you? I mean, apparently it costs all kinds of money, and it's just so elaborate to not so elaborate to make, but it's like. Apparently it was very difficult. You could say it almost kind of killed the Western, too. Yeah. You know, in a way, for a while. Yeah. Because, I mean, the yeah, 80s ain't full true. of, you know, Westerns. I mean, you've got uh, um, Young Guns. <laughs> yeah. That was basically <laughs> the 90s. <laughs> it was I guess, near yeah, the I end of that's the 80s kind of true. That, that came out, I think. I guess that's kind of true. Yeah, there was definitely, yeah. The, and it uh, wasn't until you, had, the until you had Unforgiven... I think you got your... 90, your which, yeah, which is your which, last great kind of Western... When was that, 92? Yeah, 92. Was Unforgiven? Yeah. Um, but, I mean, what is interesting is you still had uh, Clint Eastwood in the 1970s was another one who, who made his... Um, he didn't make his... He made, I would say he made his, uh, his filmmaking... Um, not resurgence, but like... His filmmaking career kind of started back then because he was already doing movies in the '60s. You know, he had already done the Sergio Leone um, spaghetti he was westerns. Moving on from being just the western guy. Yeah, um, he was moving on from being a cowboy to kind of being a American cowboy yeah, in mean, modern yeah, day. That's basically Dirty Harry's basically a he's it's his char- it's his it's his character from those movies, but in, in that modern costumes. in a modern co- uh, cop sense. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of. What he got his what he got his his name for you know Clint Eastwood his claim to fame, um, but yeah he was making a lot of movies in the in this in the seventies. I think as well he as did his movie. He did um, the Beguiled in the seventies, the original uh, Beguiled. He, um, I think you're right, but he his I'm trying to see what his um 
directorial debut was. That's, um, um, shoot. I have, What's that called? I have the movie. I, I have the movie too. It's, uh, oh, Play Misty, yeah, play for, Misty me. for Me. I don't yeah, have yeah. it. But he did direct that, but he also did High Plains Drifter, yeah. um, um, The Iger Sanction, Outlaw Josie Wales is considered one of his best, best films. Um, yeah. He did a few more, but then we get into the 1980s. But he, I think he was in more, he was, he was acting more than he was directing, but I think it's kind of, that's where he got his directorial start was back then. Um, yeah, but you're right. It is the beguiled. He was, he was, of course, he was in all the um, the Dirty Harry movies. Um, Dude, there's like you know, what, like six Force. Dirty Harry movies. I've seen them all. Actually, I own the whole box set. <laughs> I think that's five or six. The last one's not good. That's one just called Deadpool. Yeah, not yeah, not good. Um, but the one, let's see, there's there's Dirty Harry, Magnum. and then there's Magnum Force, which I think is the one directed by. Not directed by John Milius directed the third one. Sudden, which, which is sudden impact. No, sudden not sudden death. impact. That's it. Is that what it's called? I think you're right. Yeah. No, sudden impact. I was okay. right. Sudden no, death. No, he directed that. Sudden death is a, a Jean Claude yeah, Van Damme movie. <laughs> oh, the Enforcer. That's the one. <laughs> That's directed. No, it's not. God damn it, Steve. You don't know what you're <laughs> maybe, talking about. Maybe John Millie's Why are we going down this whole path of talking about I know, Clint I mean, Eastwood you gotta movies? Get, you got you to get me back on track because that's, that's why. Well. That's what you're, that's what you're well, here for. Well, okay. But, well, but basically, the long, the long and the short of it is the, they they kind of played themselves out and they and the studios retook control of the movie-making process. Well, they learned something. They, now they, they learned knew. what they learned from that era and, and, and yeah. you know. Um, you know, stuck. You know, the big gun stuck around. Of course, Spielberg continued to make right. successful movies, um, right. and and other people sprouted out of that time um, that continued to make successful movies in the eighties. Um, but the other ones, you know, other people didn't make as you know, like Coppola. Though he did make other movies, I don't think he made anything nearly nearly successful. As what he did in his, the seventies, his nineteen eighties uh, filmography, I think it's a bad rap personally. Um, before I get into that, John Milius uncreditedly wrote Dirty Harry, and then he wrote the screenplay for Magnum Force. So he didn't he didn't write. Um, he didn't direct. He didn't. He no. He didn't direct them. But he also wrote the screenplay uh, for The Wind and the Lion, which is a really good film that no one seems to talk about, starring um, Sean Connery and Candace Bergen. Um, but like you were saying, Coppola in the sick in the in the eighties, he did oh man, he he did um um The Outsiders. Sure. He did the Outsiders. Yeah. Which I think is which I think is really good, which no one kind of um gives a lot of love to, but I really love that movie. He also did another fish that another fish of kind of bury the lead. He did Rumble Fish. Which is so That's underrated. That's a cult film, yeah. Yeah it's, yeah, it's so underrated. But he also did. Um, what's the well, movie? Wait, he wasn't did? Rumblefish? Was it Rumblefish in the eighties? Nineteen eighty-three, uh. and it's it's an art. Yeah, Matt Dillon, Mickey Rourke, Diane Lane, Dennis Hopper, um, Nicolas Cage, of course, is in it. Yes. Chris Penn, Lawrence Fishburne, really young Lawrence Fishburne. Um, yeah, Tom Waits is in the film. Um, yeah, that's a great film, shot in black and white. And I think the only color used in the film is for these for these rumble fish. 
Um, well, I mean, you can see he had to. He, he went down. He went back to having went, to make a very small movie, very small movies yeah. compared to what he was doing. Yeah, he went. Ba- he went back to making like indie, like existential films, very much so. Like you, like Rumble, Rumblefish, and um, The Outsiders are very like young existential. Well, we films. know his most like, existential film ever came in the '90s with Jack. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. You know he didn't make that. You know, you know the rumors that the that his D his D his uh, director of photography actually made really? that movie. That's a that's a rumor I've heard for years. I don't know. I don't. I don't think it's true. But yeah. But I mean, of course, he made Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is pretty good too. Of course, Godfather Part Three, which, which not a lot people, of people don't like, like. Which is uh, like to, to, talk to be about. honest, it's, it's it's warranted whether why people don't like that movie. Look, every every um, most most there there is not a filmmaker I think that has made all perfect movies. So yeah. Oh, you mean with a perfect filmography? And there's not not a filmmaker that's got a perfect filmography. Not even a great, yeah, like, like right. not you know, like everybody's got a stinker or something uh, that's lesser I mean, than in their. I mean, it, honestly, it all depends on what you like or sure. don't like. I mean, Stanley Kubrick is pretty yeah, solid. Yeah, well, yeah, but you're you're kind I mean, of uh, biased on that. Bias you're is very biased. biased as hell. <laughs> a lot of people don't like Eyes Wide Shut, but I think it's amazing. I think it's amazing. Um, also, I mean. I mean, Killer's Kiss, which is one of his earlier films, is not is not great. Um, and then Fear and Desire is not real is is a film, but it's like it's a film that he kind of disowned because he made it, he made it when he was like super super young. Yeah. Um, but that's that's a different story. He wasn't he wasn't part of that whole that whole uh, new Hollywood era. Although he was making films, but he was making films overseas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what I mean, another thing I want to mention before we check out of here. Um, is of course you know the studios like I said the studios kind of that now they knew what types of films to make so now they didn't need the filmmakers anymore that's kind of how that wrapped yeah. that up but while America was having this new Hollywood Renaissance the 1970s in England was kind of when things were falling apart and I think like the 1980s in England is actually when they were having their Renaissance as well um, but they actually had already had a young person's um, a young a young filmmaker uh, renaissance in the 1960s. So they so when we were co- when we were coming into our renaissance, their renaissance was going away, yeah. and they were going down like they were going down. And now that they're back, now once our renaissance was over, they're, they're they were getting they were having a new renaissance in the 80s. Very very interesting how you know you know international film history yeah. lines up with one oh, another. Oh yeah, it's like it's I like we copy them or something or something. You know. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, I mean what, what, as it is, when they have like Mike, the, Mike Lee, part of the '80s Renaissance. Um, he started. He was later, um, but I mean, there was like. It, it, I don't want us to go. Never mind. Talk. Never mind. I mean, we go down a track like you know, you know, like movies like uh, Gandhi, Chariots of Fire. Um, you know those types. We of don't need movies to get down movies that and whatnot. We don't need to go down that track. Yeah. Go go down there, um, because that's a that's a different episode for a different time, which needs a lot more investigating, of yes. course. Um, but yeah, that's kind of been it. We've gone over so much, and there's still so much to go over because there's so many ins and outs of the new new Hollywood era. But we don't want to go into everything because a lot of these filmmakers and movies and all that kind of stuff. I think we kind of want to save for yeah. Other we could do, we could de- we can definitely expand on some of you know take a microscope and expand on certain parts of what we talked about today, um, whether it be you know delving into a certain actor or filmmaker um um yeah so i i would say let's stop it there um right that's going to be it for this episode of cinema discovery project uh where can we find you andrew 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Capzilla06, as well as my YouTube channel, Capzilla Productions. And you can find me on Facebook, Stephen Billings, uh, on Instagram, uh, Cinema Discovery Project, also Letterboxd. I, I'm Ooh. always rating movies that I've seen. I'm, I'm trying to watch as many new movies this year as possible. Um, I have a list going of um, you know, new, new movies to me, uh, m- new movies I've seen this year. And I'm, 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 I'm at about 55. So that's pretty good. Uh, nice. Yeah, um, so yeah. And, uh, you can find the audio for this podcast on Podbean and auto, uh, Apple podcasts. And that will be it for this episode. Thanks for listening and keep on watching them movies. I know I will.